guys, and welcome to the second season of the Yamcast, where we help young adults navigate this world and assist anyone in starting a young adult ministry. We do this by going through some books of the Bible that we are currently going through with our own young adult group. I am one of your hosts, Erica Haas. And I'm the other host, Chris Stukenberg. We love to guide this age group through life and their faith. And this season, we're actually going to cover the book of Ruth. Uh And we're super excited about it. So if you'd like to know more, check us out at Instagram at the Yamcast or Facebook at YamcastPod. Or you can email us at YamcastPod at gmail.com. If you like what you hear, please share with your friends because we all know that sharing is caring. Subscribe, rate, and review on any of the podcast platforms. All right, you ready? As they say, I was born ready. Welcome back to the Amcast. This is Ruth One coming at you right now. Yes, it is. That's my big radio voice. How'd it sound? That was pretty good. It's very announcer. Yeah. Yeah. So, did we have any feedback from the Hearing God podcast? Yeah. We did. <laughs> yeah, I was chatting with one of my friends, and we were just chatting about. Just the differences in the way that God speaks to us. And we just really wanted to, and, we, and I don't feel like we nailed this down, but right. I wanted to make sure that we did that. Just in saying that God is going to speak to you how you will hear it. Like, I am more of a feelings-based person. So, yes, he is going to tap into my feelings a little bit more to speak to me, whereas you are not a feelings-based person. You are more of a mental-based person. That really hurts my feelings. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that, but it's the truth. So um, so he's going to more cognitively speak to you. And so just really just, yeah, trying to see that differences don't necessarily mean that one is better than the other, but he is going to speak to you how you will be able to hear him. Right. That's a great point. And I feel like we implicitly said that. Mm-hmm. So now I want to explicitly say it. If he is the God of the universe, which he believe, we believe that he is, and he created us, and he's capable of knowing us infinitely beyond what we could even know one another. Why wouldn't he know exactly how to communicate the best with us and then therefore use that to communicate to us? Exactly. Just posed a slightly different way, but the same concept. Mm -hmm. So if you're a touchy-feely person, there's a really good chance that when you know God is speaking to you, it's going to impact you in that way. Just like when I'm reading something, my brain is what works the best. It's the only feature I have that's any good. You know? <laughs> and so if my brain is running full speed and God stops me and quiets me and speaks to me, it's usually through my mind. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that I never have moments where I'm feeling overwhelmed or moments where I feel like I need to go be active to do something for God. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. It's not that he's always going to speak to you right. in that way. Because, yes, there are times when I'm reading something and I'm like, whoa, that is a crazy connection, which is far more of a mental um, mental connection. And it still is God speaking to me, but it's not necessarily through my feelings. So it, it does change. But, yeah, primarily he will speak to you how you can hear it. So, mm-hmm. And I would say that in the beginning, it was far less cognitively he was speaking to me. It was far more feelings-based. Now I would say that he does, I would say more so now. It's not that it's not feelings-based, but that it is more mental that he is speaking to me. Or at least like the pendulum has shifted a little bit more, which is, I think, interesting. You're getting older. Mm-hmm. So. And you realize you can't trust your feelings. 
So he's going to speak to you. Yeah, not all the time. What what best is going to work. So totally agree. All right, we've had to add a new segment because shout outs have become a thing. Yeah. Apparently. <laughs> so <laughs> it almost feels wrong to give a shout out to Todd because he basically <laughs> just said, I really love shout outs. Yep. <laughs> but Todd, we love you. We're so glad that you're listening to this podcast. I've loved our conversations about the Bible and how this podcast has helped you to actually want to read God's word. So definitely, Todd, you get a shout out. Yeah. He said, I love shout outs. Thanks for the new shout outs. So I was like, <laughs> and then even hashtagged shout outs, I think. So I was like, oh, got it. We got to do it. Uh, so Todd, there's your shout out. We appreciate you. We do. Thank you <laughs> for engaging with us on the social media. All right. Are we ready for Ruth one? Oh, as much as I'll ever be. This story is going to run us in some directions from where we were in, in Judges, and it's going to push us in a direction that's really fun. And then we have some decisions to make with what we want to do with season three, once we're done with Ruth, where mm-hmm. we want to go. And there's tons of ideas that we have, but we have to figure out what we want to do there. So basic storyline of Ruth one. Here we go. Uh, I'm going to put it in like as simple as possible you know, directions here. But so the Bethlehem fam... <laughs> The Bethlehem fam. The fam. <laughs> the fam from Bethlehem. They go down to Moab. Uh, and the, the names of the people here are Elimelech. You say that, you know, 20 pounds fast. Yeah, Elimelech, Naomi, Malan, or Machlan, that's another way, or Kilian. Kilian. Mm-hmm. We're going to go with Malan and Kilian because that's we're English and that's how we talk. It's a so, little easier for us. Doesn't mean we shouldn't, but you yeah. Yeah, it's correct. That's how we speak, so we're going to speak that way. So they head down to Moab due to a famine. And if you remember from Judges, Moab is a bad place. It's not good. That's where Eglon was, right? Remember, Ehud had to stab him Mm -hmm. in the stomach. But they go anyways, which tells us something's happening here. And if they're having to go to Moab, it means either the famine's really bad or it means that this family is not connected to God in the way that maybe they should. They're not trusting him. But regardless, they leave Bethlehem and they head down into Moab. So if you were to follow the map here, it's basically just Bethlehem is a couple miles away from Jerusalem. So you'd walk up to Jerusalem and then you'd catch a road all the way down to Jericho. And then after you cross the Jordan River, mm-hmm. that's the land of Moab right there. And if you're like, I don't know where that is, we'll, we'll add a map so that you see it. So they go anyways to this Moab place. And you're kind of wondering, is this story going to go well or is it not going to go well? They all went to a place they're not supposed to be. How's this going to work out? Pretty quickly in the story... All the boys die. The dad, the brothers, everybody, everyone who's a male in this family dies. So I'd say the family is doing great, right? (laughs) Everything's going wonderfully for them. So all you have left is a mother-in-law and two daughters-in-law, and they're all just trying to figure out what they're going to do next. The problem with that is there's no actual real family ties, right? I mean, if you had a a father-in-law with his daughters-in-law, even that isn't really a, a a connection. There's no actual like mm-hmm. reason to hang out with each other after that. And some of you listening to this podcast probably don't have a great relationship with your in-laws. If you're, <laughs> so you're like, get out. Yeah, while you're you like, still I can. can't imagine this story. So just add that to it. I mean, it's slightly different in a familial culture, like what we're dealing with in, in the middle East and especially in ancient culture, that wouldn't have been as much of an issue, but in, in America, you know, you think about in-laws. So just imagine 
everybody in your family dies besides your daughter-in-law or your mother-in-law. And you're looking at each other going, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. Well, because, I mean, we talk about it a little bit too, but you don't, we will, in the deeper dive. But yeah, as a woman, you need a male to be able to do a lot of anything, right? It's, you're kind of at the end of your rope. And so all three of them are sitting there like, we're all at the end of our rope. Like, what? yeah, it's, um, yeah, I just can't imagine that feeling. No. And they are at the end of the rope in a, in every possible way here. So what, how are they going to handle the situation? What's going to happen? Well, here's what happens. Naomi, the mother-in-law, decides, I'm going to go back home. The famine is over there. I'm going to go back home and do my thing. So she heads out. And as she's going, she turns to her daughter-in-laws and says, you guys can go. Go do your thing. Just leave. But one of the daughter-in-laws, Ruth, decides, I'm not leaving. I'm staying right here. I'm going to stick with you. Your God will become my God. And it becomes this amazing moment where she's connected. And they, so they, they turn around. They head up the hill, head to Jerusalem, wander down from Jerusalem into Bethlehem. And as they walk into Bethlehem, everyone's like, is this, is this Naomi? Is that like we remember her? I remember Naomi. I thought she had a whole family. What happened? Yeah. The gossip mill running. That's pretty much the whispers that are happening in Bethlehem. I'm 25% sure that that's how that was going down. Because <laughs> first of all, they were speaking in Hebrew, so they weren't. Quite saying that. But, know, so I can't, I, I shouldn't have but said. But human nature. So I'm 0% sure do. they were talking in English. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm about 25 to 50% sure that that's what they were whispering. I can't believe she's back. What's going on? What kind of scandal happened? And she must overhear it because she turns around and she goes, don't call me Naomi anymore. Just call me Mara, which mm. means bitterness, which is such a sad. Like we read the story. We don't really pick all that up because we're English and we don't understand Hebrew. But if you were saying like, oh, is that Naomi? Which means, you know, cheerful, nice, pleasant. And she's like, no, I'm not Naomi anymore. I'm My not name things. is Mara. And she's like, falls on her knees. And she's like, ah. Mm-hmm. And that's how the story ends in chapter one. I was going to say, not the full story. <laughs> <laughs> and we're done. All right, moving on to another book. Oh, uh, that's the end of chapter one. <laughs> so, but there is a little detail that I, I didn't throw in here yet. So before we go to the deeper dive, it's the beginning of the barley harvest. Dun, dun, dun. And you're the like, opposite of famine, which is kind of interesting. Exactly. And you might be thinking, why does that matter, Chris? You're a moron. Don't point those details out. And I say, aha, aha. <laughs> Not a moron. We're going to move to deeper dive. That's very Hebrew of you. And we go, yeah, very, very Hebrew. And, when we, I, and I'm so not Jewish, but I sometimes I wish I was. All right. So when we move into the deeper dive, we're actually going to talk about the barley harvest a little bit. So that is the basic storyline. Any questions? Um... I do not believe so. I think you answered them all. <laughs> Glorious. All right, so let's go. It's time for the deeper dive. It's been a long time. I was time. just thinking that. We've not done that for- I was like, it has been a long time since we've done that. Too many yam snacks. Get them We ate too many of those yam snacks, and now it's time to move back to- A full meal. <laughs> totally separate idea, but important to talk about right now. I, I kind of imagine a yam snack is like a Scooby snack in mm. my head. Just a nibble. Yeah, just a little. Treat. But it makes everybody better. Like a Scooby snack. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Scooby-Doo was always way better after he had. I mean, he needed them. Just like the yam cast is better with a yam snack. 
That's my point. Trinkled in there. All right. So moving into the deeper dive. Mm-hmm. Three topics to talk about really quickly. The first one, the barley harvest. Erica, what was the last barley harvest that we heard about in the Bible? Um, it was with Samson. And how did that one go? Well, he lit some foxes on fire, and I'm guessing there wasn't any barley left. So it went really well. Yeah. Yeah. So barley is an interesting thing to talk about in the scriptures. And most po- most folks that read the Bible don't know this. And so I want to take just a couple of seconds to talk this through. The barley harvest happens in the early spring to mid-spring, early summer. So the barley harvest can start in Jericho, just, just outside of Moab. That can start as early as March, like late, early, you know, early, mid-March, late March, somewhere in there, early April at the latest. But when you move up into the hill country, which is where Bethlehem is, the barley harvest starts a little later and it ends right around a time that is very famous in scripture called Pentecost. Mm-hmm. 50 days after Passover. So barley harvests have all kinds of amazing connections to all kinds of things in scripture. I'm sure we'll get to that at some other point. I'm not going there yet because we don't want to spend the whole time just talking about barley because that's that would make this podcast terrible to listen to. It's not Ruth. <laughs> Correct. But, well, you're, it's not. But here's why the barley harvest matters for the story of Ruth. And here's why the barley harvest matters in other places in scripture. I'm just going to run through a couple of them really quickly. With the barley harvest happening, it's the first of the harvests. So barley is first and then wheat. Those are the main two grains that are grown in this area. They didn't have oats. They didn't have corn. You know, all the things that you think about when we're driving around our area. And our harvest is in the fall, which is why we have all the harvest parties and festivals and all that kind of stuff, right? Halloween, all that's because of harvest. But in Israel, the rain starts in the fall. So you'd plant seed then and it's warm all winter. So then it actually is ready to, to, to be harvested at the beginning of spring. And the barley harvest was the, the poor man's harvest. They would usually use barley to feed animals. But what happened with barley was everyone who wasn't rich enough to afford something, they used barley as their thing. So all throughout the scriptures, you know that things are bad if it mentions mm-hmm. that barley is expensive. They very rarely talk about wheat because wheat is not used by most people because they didn't have the money to afford it. So barley means the common man's grain. It's what the animals didn't eat. Sorry, the animals ate it and whatever's left over, the poor men you know, the poor people got. So when we were reading in Judges, and I didn't bring this up then because I knew it would come eventually. So here we go. When it said that Gideon, remember that dream that that guy had? And he said a a roll of barley wheat or or barley loaf rolled down off the hills Mm -hmm. and destroyed the people that Gideon was going up against Mm -hmm. the Midianites. That's what he's saying is a a lesser loaf, not not a famous, big, powerful person you know, the leftovers. That's mm-hmm. kind of the idea. It's also interesting that Jesus feeds the 5,000 with five loaves of barley and two fish. So again, the idea is it's the poor man's grain. It's, it just means it's, it's for the common folk. So when Samson lights that harvest on fire, that's telling you that's going to do massive economic damage to that area. Just like right now, when we're reading it's time for the barley harvest, the people who are typically harvesting barley are maybe the low down and outs. And that's going to be a part of the story as we yes. get forward a little bit. But it's also the time of year when, you know, they're going to feed the animals and all that kind of stuff. So it's not like the best of the best stuff. So you kind of think, oh, no, this story is not going to go well based on the fact that it's the barley harvest. So, again, it's just a little nuance that's there. It's important for us to notice those things, and we don't usually notice them. So I thought we'd spend a, a couple of minutes on just that. Second thing in the deeper dive, uh, names are incredibly important in Scripture. We've talked about this a number of times, right? We've talked about individuals who 
their name means this or that, like some Samson, you know, Shamshon, like this idea of the sun god worship, possibly. We threw that out there a couple of weeks ago. But the, the people in this story are important. Elimelech means God is king or my God is king. Can you imagine going into Moab and you're telling everybody, my name is Elimelech, which means my God is better than your God. Hmm. That's an interesting thing. So you wonder, would he have changed his name going into Moab so that he doesn't have issues? Or does he like, I don't care, I'm going to do my thing? Or is he named that for some other reason? We, don't, we just don't know. Naomi, like I said, means pleasant or delight. Uh, Mara, obviously, she tries to change it to bitterness, which is a totally different thing. But what's so funny about this story is the two kids' names are Malan and Kilian, like we just talked about a little bit ago. Malan means sickly. And <laughs> Kilian means frailty or mortal, or like, yeah, mortal. Uh, so the idea here is these individuals, their names mean I don't feel well and death. Yeah. <laughs> and they both die. Just so totally randomly. Very fitting. So then the question becomes, and a lot of scholars point this stuff out. Are these their real names? What parent in their right mind would name a kid? You know, if like if we had a child, uh, you know, Heidi and I had another child, and we we're looking at it, and we're just like, the child looks kind of sickly. Let's just name him sickly, you know, or name her sickly. Yeah, that would be a horrible name to name a child. So some wonder if these were their actual names, or if these were nicknames given to them after they passed away, and so the story has them, or if it was just a clever way for the Hebrew writers to. Not give them their real names, but give them what they were in the character so that when you're a little kid reading this in Sunday school or whatever, you're yeah. like, oh, sickly and death. I gotcha. These guys aren't going to go last. well. And you turn you know, to the next verse and it's like, and they both died. And you're like, I knew that was coming. So again, it's something we wouldn't notice, but it's something that we need to kind of think through. So uh, four different possibilities of names in scripture. Either they're named specifically because of that's who they are. So like Esau is named Red because he's covered in red hair. That's what Esau means, Red. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Or it could mean, so that's the first one. They're either named for what they are. Number two, it could be a characterized name or a mocking thing. So they could be named this because it's funny and it's supposed to make us go, oh, okay, I think I know what's going to happen. It's possible, number three, that they are renamed after their death in some way. And so after they die, they're like, well, we're going to give them these names because they're, they're messed up. Just like Naomi walks in town and says, call me Mara. You know, like mm -hmm. it's possible that afterward they're like, well, you know, Malan and Kilian, they didn't work out well. So we're going to, you know, we're going to name them. Yeah. Fun names. Or the other possibility is it's a nickname given to them, which if that's the case, that's the fourth possibility. If, it, if it's a nickname given to them, I wouldn't have married that dude. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there's my son. His name is, you know, Hector, but we call him Malan. And you're like. Malon, oh, yeah, I'll marry him. And then he's like, I'm really sickly. You know, you're like, wait he's a walking second. Around. Yeah, he's walking around. His arms are falling off of him. He's like, I don't know what to do. I kind of imagine like a zombie, you know, like a, or mm -hmm. anyway, something. All right. Breathing anyway. heavily and yeah. Yeah. He's like, oh, I wouldn't love to marry you. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like Jeff. Yeah. Was it Jeff? That's, that's Jeff. Yeah. There's yeah, a character on the board written right next to us here that I named Jeff and he looks... Looks kind of like Malan would look like, and mm -hmm. uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll take a picture of it and throw it on somewhere. All right. Lastly, and this is the topic that I know you want to talk about because you brought it up a little bit ago. Uh, the death of a spouse in ancient times was pretty much a death sentence. That's still the case in most of the world today. Mm -hmm. If you, you know, you get married and your husband passes away or your wife passes away, you're left in a weird place. But especially if you are a woman who loses a husband. In the ancient world, your husband was the one who, you know, we use terms today like breadwinner. That, that all came from ancient times. 
the idea is that that individual is the one who's actually going to take care of you. The woman was to take care of the home. The man was to go out and actually earn something. The man was who the land was attached to. The man was who the family is, is attached to. So your children uh, were supposed to be raised up because of their father. So if the dad is a total slough or, or is a total moron, the children suffer greatly. Mm-hmm. That's kind of still true today, right? I mean, if yeah. if the dad doesn't pay child support or whatever, you got a little bit of that going on. But it, But the rights of women today, especially in America are completely different than this story. Part of that is actually because of the biblical influence that has happened over the last however many thousands of years now. Because one of the very first things that we find out when they move in the promised land is that women can inherit property if their father passes away and if they're not married. We learn that in numbers. So spouses dying, like a a male dying and a woman being left on her own, the people who took care of them in the Bible were... The, the nation of Israel and then the church. So women were raised up and elevated to not have to live in poverty the rest of their life because of the fact that they were a widow or because these things happened. And that has been exacerbated and grown over the last 2000 years, especially since the church has started to where women have rights that they would not have had in the ancient times. And that's partly because our society has continually thought this through and said, no, the Bible is saying this women are valuable. They're important. I know that a lot of people have strong opinions about mm-hmm. Christianity and women, but what's ironic is when you compare Christianity to any of the other religions around the world that are major religions, Christianity has elevated women to a level that most of the others haven't, right? I mean, if you sit and talk with a with a, a woman in Islam, she's not given the same rights that a, a Christian woman is. So I, I think sometimes we get a bad rap in that way. And I wanted to say that you know the church has done a good job in some ways of of elevating women, giving them opportunities that others haven't. Some churches are way behind, but that's a whole other discussion that we'll get into yeah. some other time. But regardless, back to the point here. The idea is that if if a, if a spouse died, if a man died, you you had nothing. So the reason why she wants to be called Mara is she has no person to take care of her. She has no sons to take care of her. So all she has is is two poor daughter in laws who they can't take care of themselves. And so their last option is, let's just go back home and we'll just we'll just live there and hope that everything goes okay. But we're going to find out, like I said, in chapters two and on, Naomi forces Ruth to go do some harvesting in the barley fields, the lowest of the low work, to try to make a little bit of money. And there's going to be some beautiful things that happen in that. So mm-hmm. so what would you want to add to that, that part of the discussion? Well, it just, with the last little bit that you're talking about, Reminds me of what we talked about when we did the intro a couple of weeks back and that she is almost like the female Job, but I would say, yes, worse off. She literally has nothing. Whereas Job could pick himself up and go do what he wanted to do. She cannot do that. So she is literally at her, like at her end. Um, And yeah, it's just, yeah. So just really seeing, because I think it's really hard for us to understand in our day and age what that would be like to lose a spouse. We just see it more as emotional. We don't necessarily see it as like economical, like, you know, my inheritance, like all of that. And it was huge back then. I mean, that's why all throughout scripture, often you see take care of the widow and the orphan, the widow and the orphan, because they literally, they need that to live. So, Right. And where it's hard for us to understand, if if a if a husband dies today, typically in our in our minds as an American reader slash listener or whatever, 
we go, oh, well, then she should just go get a job and try to make ends yeah. meet. You know, you think of Aaron Brockovich or some of these other, you know, like she wasn't a widow, but you think of these individuals in the movies and they're like, they made a name for themselves. She could make a name for herself. She needs to go back to school. She needs to do this thing. Even today, it it does have a nuance to it. I, I know of a, a lot of single moms who are just way behind and mm-hmm. they're going, I can't make this work because either my husband split or, or he died. So we're not belittling that idea. It, that is still very, very true today. Yes. But the options that are available to women in America to go out and actually make some money and, and provide for your family is there. Ruth didn't even have that, right? I mean, Naomi doesn't even have that at all. There's no, there's nothing for them. They've got no options besides a, a man picking them up and sort of dusting them off and saying, okay, here you go. I'm going to give you value. Which is, I'm imagining, not the most common thing in that culture. It was supposed to be. Yes. I don't think that it was as common as it should have been, which is part of what we're going to get into mm-hmm. in chapters three, two, three, four, all that. Yep. I mean, because just even in human nature, like, you you want the, the new, you don't necessarily want the leftover. That sounds really bad. But I don't true. mean it to, but... You don't want somebody that's, you know, past. You want an inheritance. Like, you need to keep your line going, and you don't know if you would have that with somebody that is older. And it really would be out of true love, mercy, whatever, not out of any selfishness, really, that you would choose to do that. And And we're prone to selfishness. Totally. And in this case, you're also marrying someone who doesn't have a child currently. Mm Mm-hmm. So you don't know if she can bear children or not. Yeah. And that's another problem. So we're going to get into the nuance of that over the next couple of weeks as we sort of dive into that together. But that's what you should be looking for. That's what you should be noticing in, in the book of Ruth. Be ready to, to dive a little deeper as we, we go over the next couple of weeks. But for now, let's get practical. Let's get practical. Practical. I almost wasn't sure if I would be able to do that again. You did great. Thanks. You did great. It's been a long I time. I my best. I feel like I want to slip into Jeff all the time, uh, this voice, <laughs> this alter ego that I'm creating. So one of the questions that we wanted to talk about with, let's let's get practical, was who in this story should we be most like? And we're especially thinking here about our female listeners. And you might be reading Ruth going, who should I be aiming towards? Yeah, and I mean, this can be for anyone as well, just that when things don't go how you planned, right? I mean, we can all relate to that. Naomi, well, let's start with Ruth. Ruth responds with, this is how she responds to her mother-in-law. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So that's how she responds when Naomi is like, please just leave. I have nothing for you. And she is like, I'm staying with you. I don't know how long they've been together, but she's like, I'm not going to leave you. Even when like her back is up against the wall and she might even have some something better at home. But for some reason, I don't know if it's her seeing their faith, whatever it might be. She's staying. She's choosing to tough it out, thick and thin, whatever. And then Naomi's response that we talked about a little bit is 
Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So we're kind of talking about today, who would you prefer to be more like? When things are not going as you had planned, are you going to have the reaction of Ruth, where she's like, I'm sticking it out no matter what? Or Naomi, where she is like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I'm not a delight and cheerful anymore. I'm not going to go towards bitterness because I am done. God has done all of this to me, whatever it might be. So, yeah, who who do you want to be more like? Yeah, I think it's a great thought experiment to just dive into that and a great concept for us to kind of consider because you want people in your life like Ruth, right? You want people that are committed they're all in. You know, we talk about you're my people, you're my tribe. You know, like we use those mm-hmm. phrases even today. You know, uh, I think of the Grey's Anatomy thing in whatever season one or two, whatever that was. But, you're, you know, you're my person. You're my person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we want those people. We want people in our life that no matter how bad it gets, they're going to stick it out with us, walk through the valleys with us and be there. So that seems like a great option. Mm-hmm. It's easy to have. I shouldn't say it's easy. We want to find roots and we keep those in our life. It's a lot more difficult to be a Ruth. Very true. Right? When our friends let us down or bad stuff happens to us. That's the thing. On the flip side, Naomi's honest and open. Very true. And real. And so we also want people in our life that are like that. Or we need to be like that. Right? If someone asks you how you're doing, if you're always like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm a delight. Good. I'm great. You know, if she would have walked back into town, she's like, I'm pleasant, I'm pleasant, I'm pleasant. You know, I'm Naomi. Yep. Everything's great. No, 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 no. Like, is this Naomi? Yep, everything's awesome. My life's great. This story wouldn't have turned out the way it's supposed no. to, which is part of what we're we're going to pose this thought experiment to you and just l- let you think about it for this week. As you read chapter one and think it over, you know, who who do you most want to be like? By the end of the story, you might be a little surprised with who, which one you want to be a part of or which one you want to be like. But for now, I think you can see the value in both of them and you go, oh, yeah, all right, cool. I can be like that or I can be like that. That's cool. So the next thing we want to dive into with with getting practical is sometimes you need to return to what you know in order to start again. So we don't know exactly why they decided to go to Moab. As, as Chris talked about, was it the famine was too bad? Was there just greatness happening in Moab at the time? Like we don't know exactly why they decided to go. But things did not go as planned when they got there. And yeah, they were at the end. They didn't know what to do. And sometimes when you don't know what to do, you need to go to what is familiar. You need to go to what you know in order to kind of get your bearings, your foundation again, to be able to start anew. And that is exactly what I think they did. And I think that's exactly what we need to do when we're confused and don't understand what to do in life and almost feel like all the doors are shutting. Sometimes that means maybe we need to take a few steps back reassess, and then we can potentially either see another door or move in a different direction. So, And that never happens for young adults. No, everything always goes according to plan. <laughs> I mean, if you think about young adults and how much their life, there's, oh, I think there's always a moment in a young adult's life, based on my ministry experience, there's never not a moment when you realize, oh my goodness, what am I doing? I can't believe this. Right, we call it that come to the senses moment, or the you know, uh, you know, 
tie your shoes and get in there kind of thing. You know, there's this moment of like, am I going to poop or get off the pot? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, so the fact that there's all these moments in our life where we have this this thing that's happening and we're going, I, I don't know what to do. Sometimes... Sometimes it means that that challenge is there for you just to step up and push into it harder. But more often than not, we should return to the familiar for a little bit just to get our bearings and move forward, like we're saying, mm-hmm. right? I think about so many conversations that I have with folks that are young adult and they're, they're in this moment of life where they're going, I don't, I don't know how I got here. I made a ton of mistakes. Our first move is, are you reading scripture? Have you been praying? What church are you connected with? You know, you're off at college or you move to another town to, you know, chase your career or whatever. And their their answer is usually, oh, I'm not doing, I'm doing any of those things. Well, we discipled you. We trained you. We, we helped you think how to walk with Jesus. And now you're reaching out to me wanting to know what to do next. Your first move is to get back to who you are. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And that's that's a bit of a tangent from what we're saying, but it's the same idea. Get back to the basics. Remember who you are. Start with familiar. Get your bearings. Once you've got that, then shift and keep moving forward. Yeah, a good question to ask yourself is when was the last time that I did feel certain, whatever it might be? And I would almost guarantee that that was when you were following God and being very intentional with that relationship And then that kind of shows you, oh, then I need to be prioritizing that relationship now. And I mean, a little bit, a sidetrack a little bit. I don't know if this is comforting for you, but I know that it kind of is for me that Naomi is a grown woman. She definitely is older because she has daughters-in-law. And she still is struggling with this. Like, I don't know if you ever come to, a, I know that this is comforting for me to know that there you don't come to a place and finally think I've arrived and I figured it out and here we go, which is good to, for me to know because then I'm going to just constantly be doing and searching and figuring it out and learning and it being a journey rather than just thinking there's a destination that I have to get to and then I'll be good and then I'll figure it all out. And so seeing that Naomi struggled as, She could potentially be a grandma, you know, if they would have had children Um, that she's still dealing with it just kind of lets me know that like, oh, even adults, we all are going to deal with this. So we might put on a brave face sometimes that we've got it all figured out. But truthfully, we're all sitting here going, is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? Should I be doing something else? You know, that sort of thing. And this might be comforting, but I've, I've never once met someone and this speaks right into your point, which is so good. But I've never met someone who gets to their spot that they're supposed to be in, in their mind, and then they're satisfied. Yeah. Every single person who's ever, quote unquote, arrived, realizes, well, that's not what I thought it was going to be. So there's this constant disequilibrium of living on this planet where we're, we're just left in this place of, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with that. You know, you finally get the house, you finally get the grandkids, you finally get this thing and you look around and you go, is this all there is? Like, I can't believe this. There's gotta be more. And so I know people who have, you know, finally arrived and then sold it all to go do something else. Cause they realized it's not what I wanted. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, or you, you think of the midlife crisis idea, you know, these, these people running away from their spouses or buying a huge red convertible or whatever, but they get to this moment in life where they're like, if this is all there is, I don't want this. I want something else. And so they go chase something else. But even when they get that, it's not what they thought it was going to be. And they want something else. And, 
So there's got to be some kind of contentment that happens. And one of the beautiful parts of this story is mercy is needed. God's going to meet people right where they're at, not only provide mercy, but change the trajectory in a beautiful way, which makes the story unbelievable and beautiful. So pay attention. Yeah. And you never get too far where you can't come back. Like you never can take too many steps away and not be able to come back. Like you're never too far gone. So if you need to turn back and then you can start again. So love it. In this corner, we got a whole bunch of numbers that Chris doesn't care about. Although he's starting to slightly care about it. The Enneagram! I was going to say, I feel like you are a little bit. Thanks How's for that? that. That was great. You're welcome. So we're only going to focus on um, Naomi and Ruth. I mean, I know getting that Malan and Killian might have been really interesting. But They're zeros. <laughs> they did. They nothing. Um, they were something. In their brief time. Uh, So we're going to start with Naomi. So all of her sons and her husband die. And she urges her daughter-in-laws to return home. And she becomes pretty melancholy, I would say. Like, I feel like it becomes a pretty, like, basically a state of being. I would say that looking at some of her things that we'll talk about, some of her behaviors, I would say that she's a four. Her circumstances seem to very much be dictating her, her like, reactions and her emotions to those things. Because we had talked about this in our group that she seems so down and out in this verse, like, with those couple verses that I had read. But when we come to her, even just in the next chapter, she's, like, completely different in her responses. And it has a lot to do with her emotions and the things that are going on. And that is kind of what a four deals with a lot is being able to regulate those emotions and not just react to them all of the time. So you're not wanting your emotions to kind of sway you and you're, you're really struggling to stay balanced as a four. So they can, um, they can really struggle to look at things rationally and they just see their emotional reaction to it. So um, but when she has some time to ponder as we'll get through, she really realizes that God is faithful, that he does provide, and that he has never left her, even though some things seem really, really dark. So, and that's usually what it is with a 4-2. Once you've had time to actually sit and ponder, you do need to usually take a couple steps back as a 4, not not react right away. Because if you do, you usually will have to apologize and kind of regret that. Not that your emotions are necessarily wrong, but we don't always want to rely on them because they can mis- they can mislead us. And usually when we have to react um, and apologize for that reaction, it's because we did it out of an emotion that was not uh, the most beneficial. So I would say that Naomi is a four, and we'll kind of look at her a little bit more as we go on too. So Ruth, what we see with Ruth is she is so stinking faithful. She is not going to turn away from Naomi, even though Naomi is desiring for her to leave, like literally asking her to leave. And she's like, nope, I'm staying. Whereas if if that were me, I would be like, you don't want me here? Then fine, I'm leaving. Like that's my reaction to when somebody says to leave. I don't necessarily have that reaction of like, okay, I'm going to stay. She seems to kind of take on the characteristics of a two, being a helper, or she could be a six, a loyalist, 
one that sticks by her people, but I don't really see her having some of those other attributes of a six. So I would say, like, with anxiety and things, so I would say she is predominantly a two. Twos have a way of seeing what other people's, what what others need, even if they don't necessarily express it. So this can sometimes be done improperly where they can be seen as intrusive or unwelcome. But when it's done right, it is exactly what that person needs and they didn't even realize it. And I think she sees that Ruth or that Naomi needs her even if Naomi's not willing to say it. And she's going to stick by her. And realize she's, she's going to need somebody in her corner. And I'm going to be that person, even if she is telling me that she wants me to leave. I know she needs this, so I'm going to do it. So I would say that she takes on a lot of those characteristics of being a two. Which is the helper. So clarify this for me. So a four, circumstances dictate your reactions. Mm-hmm. And it takes a moment for you to think rationally and that's what kind of balances you out and then you're able to just move forward. Mm -hmm. Is that a learned technique or is that just natural to a four? Oh, that is not natural. That is very much a learned technique. We, we are taken like to and fro with Mm -hmm. our emotions and actually we predominantly stay in a melancholy state and we like it actually. Like we don't, Whereas other people run from those emotions, we love to just like sit in it and really just let it take over. But some things that we've learned over the years, because that's a kind of a childish way to live, if we're going to be honest. And so when you learn over the years that a lot of people don't like that and they don't like how you respond in that way either. And so you've learned like that's not actually going to be helpful. So a four should actually go to a one when they are doing well, which means they can see more of like the right and wrong. They can see more of like, here are my actual thoughts. Here's what's actually happening. And then they can respond in that way. And that's what a one is really good at doing is really just seeing what's there. And they don't really deal a lot with emotions. And so you're just really not letting your emotions dictate how you feel. And even just how you feel. Yeah. Like you're not letting them negatively impact you. And so that is, that is very much learned. That is not natural. So that's good. And, and it's somewhat helpful, uh, for someone who doesn't care about the numbers, but, uh, does, <clears throat> that was just a joke, but <laughs> somebody doesn't care about numbers, but you say go to a one, does that mean they have to think like a one or does that mean you actually physically go to someone who is a one to talk it over with them? So that just means that you take on the good aspects of a one. So that would be kind of reading about what a one does. And really, it just means you're being a little bit more rational rather than solely based on your emotions. You're more of a balanced person. So you're going to take on, I mean, that could be talking to a one, but I just think that's understanding what a one does well and then realizing that that can really benefit you so that you can be, yes, I have these emotions. That does not mean X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. That's really what you're trying to do as a four to really balance that out but you do have moments like naomi where you're just like super honest and then i bet you yeah the next day she was like i feel great like it's all good i got it all out it's fine but in that moment somebody else might be like whoa she she's really feeling it something's happened and then the next day they might be like whoa what happened she's like completely different and a lot of times that's either because she had time to process or she got it all out and she's like i feel great now so got it cool Good job. All right, here we go. 
yam spot last thing for the podcast and we haven't done this in a long time either i know it's just so crazy we've had some good discussions though we've had great discussions i think think. so one of the things that we want to talk about with dealing with young adult and college ministry is (laughs) and it it goes along with what we're talking about with ruth it it fits into what we're kind of the, the grand scheme or narrative that we're discussing right now with with the book of ruth Commitment, and especially commitment dealing with today's culture and all that it entails, it is such a complicated thing because I find that so often when young adults are in a relationship, something doesn't go well, and their first move is to run mm-hmm. instead of pull a Ruth and go, no, I'm with you, I'm sticking it out. Mm-hmm. Now, there are a ton of things. And this is speaking specifically to leaders of a college ministry or young adult ministry. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons why someone should run from a relationship. You know, there are red flags galore with individuals that you should just consider and go, hmm, maybe I shouldn't be in this relationship. You know, if we're talking about abuse, that should never fly. If we're talking about even significant hurdles physically or mentally, and you thought you could do it, but you're not sure you can, we, we get it. You know, there's moments where people just need to go, I, I, I'm not going to be able to handle this. This is not what I thought it was. But the problem is uh, the vast majority of things that, <laughs> that a lot of young adults have conversations with me about their relationships are not major hurdles. They're little hurdles, but they're just like, I don't, I don't want to stay here for this, you know? He likes Skittles. I hate Skittles. This is stupid. <laughs> uh, you know, just that's a really extreme example. But I have had conversations that feel like that where I'm sitting across from a young woman or a young man who's going, I just can't handle this because of blank. And I sit there and think, that's just a sinful individual choosing to commit to another sinful individual. You both have to figure out how to work and make it work. You know, for years I've had kids come to me and say, I just love yours and yours and Heidi's marriage. And we'd love to have a marriage like that someday. It's a lot of hard work. Like we have to get real all the time. We have to have these conversations that are just brutal and difficult. There's times where I'm being so unbelievably stubborn that I want to just not get out of myself and I want to sit there and make her suffer for it. And I I know I'm a pastor. I have a little halo over my head. Mm -hmm. I'm never supposed to be like that. But there's moments where I just feel like I'm not being heard or I'm not being understood and there's no way around it. So I can't believe she's not going to come around and there's no reason for me to move. And that sounds childish, but welcome to human existence yeah. and human nature. It's just part of who we are. And so we have to have a, a, a long conversation to work these things out and figure out how to, how to make it meet in the middle sort of thing. So one of the biggest things you end up having to do is help young folks navigate the idea of commitment. Right. And it's an incredible challenge. Yeah. So it's really funny that you're talking that we're talking about this because I am not necessarily a young adult anymore, even though I may like to feel like I am. And I'm dating and I've had to have you basically say different things to me about like, that's not that big of a deal. That's not that big of a deal. And not necessarily so much recently, but in the very beginning, the first few months, I mean, I th- I've realized I hit like a three month threshold and that's usually when everything starts to annoy me under the sun. And it's little things like you said, how they walk, that they eat like this, that they do blah, blah, blah. And it, 
it becomes overwhelming that I don't want to do it anymore. That's the part that becomes overwhelming. It's not even what they're doing. It's what it does to me that I don't like. And that's why I don't want to do it anymore. And I, I mean, we had conversations about it, but I also had to realize, okay, what are my deal breakers? What are my actual deal breakers? And what are things that I can get over? And how somebody eats should not be a deal breaker. That's ridiculous. I mean, they could eat. I mean, I remember talking with my, my brother, my sister-in-law and my sister-in-law, we were like just talking about dating and whatnot. And she was like, well, that's why I actually have to eat at the same time as my, as Jeremy, which is my brother. Because she gets kind of annoyed. So she's just learned, I just have to eat at the same time. Whatever it was, I don't even remember if he eats loud or whatever. But that's the thing. It's not, that is not a deal breaker. How they treat you is a deal breaker. Whether if they like Jesus, that's a deal breaker. Like there's lots of things that are deal breakers. Preferences are not deal breakers. Aesthetics are not deal breakers. I remember somebody saying once that the inside is the deal breaker stuff. The outside can all be changed. Mm-hmm. And so that was huge to me because I I can get annoyed very easily. And I'm like, so really just learning to work through that annoyance is really what matters. Because I'm like, I don't want to be, you know, annoyed at three months and then be done every time. Like that's that seems ridiculous and childish, to be honest. So I think you need to figure out what your deal breakers are and then continue to remind yourself that. The outside stuff, that can all be changed. How they wear their hair, the, their glasses, the hat, the shoes, the clothes, whatever. All that can be changed. It's the inside stuff that can't be. I mean, it can be, but it takes far more time to change that stuff. And if you're not wanting to wait, you know, five years to marry them before they've dealt with whatever, then maybe that is a commitment, a commitment thing that you want to break. But... It's the inside stuff that's your deal breaker and not necessarily the outside stuff. I remember somebody making one of those cool wood signs and it's, you know, that saying of like, oh, two people, they just met and fell in love. Like that saying and then like the rest is history or whatever, that kind of saying. And they changed it to be like two people fell in love and worked their butts off to keep it going. You know, like it is not just two people meet and fall in love. It is you work at it for the rest of the time. Not just until you get married and then everything is is hunky-dory. It's a great word, by the way. So I think it's great that we're talking about this because, yeah, it when it gets hard, we think that's when we need to run. But really, that's just what develops a deeper relationship with that person. And really think about what is it that actually is hard mm-hmm. about it? Is it just that you're annoyed all of the time? Because I know that's what it is for me. And realizing, like, stop being selfish because that's usually what it is for me too. Just because he decides to do something a different way than I decide to do it does not mean that my way is better. I sometimes feel that way, but that doesn't, we can both do it different ways. And it's little things like the dishes or whatever. Those aren't, that, that's not a deal breaker. That is not, that's me needing to deal with my pride. So. And for every, for every young couple that's looking at a, 50-year-old, 60-year-old couple, 70-year-old couple. I mean, I've sat with couples who are looking at like a couple of 80-year-olds going, I just want to be just like them someday. Well, you get there by not being a jerk and stepping up and actually doing the hard work to make a relationship work. You don't hold your hands when you're 80 because you decided to, to decommit and run away from it. 
Mm-hmm. You know, we all want these moments of like the special whatever because we saw it in a movie or whatever, which it's by the way, true. that's a terrible reason to get in a relationship. But the truth is what real relationships are is way bigger, way more complicated and a ton of commitment and constant surrender of self and sacrificing of self. And that's supposed to go both ways. Mm-hmm. You're surrendering yourself. They're surrounding themselves and in the middle of that where mutual surrender is happening and you're putting yourself before Christ, that's where a relationship works. And that's how it, it develops. It's how it matures. It's how it becomes what it's supposed to become. So there's moments, you know, where Heidi and I are talking about something and she'll say, and I'm thinking about a conversation we had last night even, she's like, so that's the moment where, you know, it would be great if you would have told me this because I know why you're saying what you're saying but that's partly because of the conversations we've had, you know, over the last few weeks, because uh, COVID has made a ton of really fun conversations happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she was like, if you would have, that's one of those things where if you just explicitly tell me, and it was about my allergies, mm-hmm. I just, I was, I felt terrible. And she's like, I could tell you don't feel well. That would have been a great one for you just to kind of say, hey, I'm not feeling great. And that would have made sense as to why you're not answering me as much as or you're not doing these things. I was incredibly annoying to her and I didn't even know I was being annoying. Mm-hmm. I was... I feel terrible. <laughs> like my head's pounding. My eyes are watering. I just feel gross. And in my mind, I'm like, all I want to do is get through today. And she's hearing, well, he's not happy and he's not listening to me. So that's not good. And like, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's right. wrong? Mm-hmm. And so we just got to, you got to be careful and you got to be wise. You got to do that. Um, and part of that, it just is a really quick little caveat to add on to it, especially dealing with, with young ladies as a college pastor or a young adult pastor, and I'll just kind of close with this thought, helping women see who the guy they're looking at really is, is incredibly important. And especially in a culture that we live in where dads haven't been as evident or as available as they should have been, a lot of times young ladies haven't picked up the clues or the the moment to see exactly what's going on. So... You, you've got to help teach, uh, I don't want to say girls because they're, they're young women, mm-hmm. you know, typically 18 to, to 22, especially in the college arena. The players, I can spot them from a million miles away, right? But then there's the, you know, I'll have a, a girl from the college group come on. She's like, oh, he's talking to me. This is so great. I can't believe that I've arrived at this level. And I'm like, he's after one thing and that's not cool, right? Or... She'll come to me and go, I, he's asked me to a dance, but I don't ever want to be seen in public with him. I'm like, yeah, he's com- incredibly socially awkward, but he could be an amazing guy when you mm-hmm. get to know him. He probably doesn't even know how to talk to girls. You might be the only girls you ever talked to. And part of that is you go, you go to college and you're trying to redesign your, your personality to some extent. And you're like, I'm going to try something new. You know, you word a day toilet paper or something, you know, it says like <laughs> adventure and you're like, I'm going to go on an adventure. And so you go ask a girl that you would never would have asked otherwise. Mm-hmm. And you're in this horrible moment, but you give it a chance and who knows, like something beautiful might happen. Uh, so helping, like I said, especially helping young women navigate that is really, really helpful. I've also had the same types of conversation with guys, but they're less interested in who is this girl that I'm talking to? They're more like, what do I need to do uh, to make her like me? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's like the conversations I've typically had with young guys are like, why does nobody like me? You know, like, well, you talk like that for starters. That's maybe, <laughs> I don't understand. Change that a little bit. Let's, let's go through puberty and then we'll have the discussion. Um, <laughs> but whatever those things are, helping young people start to properly classify the individuals that they're talking to. And I don't mean that in a, 
in a prejudicial sense. I just mean in the sense of let's see through who they claim to be and let's look at the fruit. What what kind of Very fruit true. of the spirit is growing out of them? Are they someone who's actually walking with Jesus or are they are they abusing people? Are they using people? Are they in this college group just because they think Christian chicks are hot? You know, like those are all conversations and questions I've had over all of the years of college ministry. And as a as a pastor or a you know, a campus leader, one of your main goals is to help young people figure that out. So you're not only dealing with the commitment issue and teaching them how to actually commit, but you're also helping them have the right eyes to see what they're looking at. And that's an incredibly huge challenge that we've given you a little bit of, you know, information here to kind of think it through, but just know that we're praying for you because holy cow, this is a challenging, Mm -hmm. challenging time. Yeah. I like that. Look at the fruit, see what their fruit actually is. It's a huge indicator of what's on the inside. So I like that. That's good. Sweet. I think that's a wrap, Jimmy D. See y'all next time. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the Yamcast. You can check us out at yamcast.podbean.com or on any other podcasting apps like iTunes. We would love it if you'd leave us a review that is any number between four and a half and five stars. If you have any questions that you'd like us to answer here on the podcast, you can email us at yamcastpod at gmail.com. That is yamcastpod at gmail.com. If you'd like more information about us, you can check us out at parkhillschurch.com or on the app store with the Park Hills Church app. We are also on Instagram, so give us a follow at The Yamcast. Did you have something fun for the next section? A little nice intro. That was a good crack of the fingers. Did you guys all hear that? That was good, James. Do not put any of that in here. (laughs)